many people claim to be led by the Spirit. That can mean anything from having inner promptings and feelings that direct their steps to claiming to have full-blown visions and revelations today of the Spirit, telling them how they're supposed to live and how we're supposed to behave. And because of these misuses, we're often afraid to speak of being led by the Spirit. In fact, if somebody talks about being led by the Spirit, we automatically hold them suspect. We're just afraid that sounds just a little too Pentecostal. However, Romans chapter 8 and verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14, excuse me, verse 18, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 18 says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. We just have to come to grips with the fact that the Bible demonstrates that we are led by the Spirit. Or we are supposed to be led by the Spirit. But what does that mean? How does that work in our lives and in our churches? That's what I want us to address today. God the Spirit, the Spirit of God, wants to lead us. But how? From the text of those two passages, I think we can find four major keys that helps us understand what it means to be led by the Spirit. And I want us to examine that this morning. But before we do, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, You are the great and awesome God. You sent Your Son to die for us. His blood was shed so that we could have remission of sins and a hope of heaven. And You sent Your Spirit who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, who has provided all truth for us so that we might be equipped for every good work. We pray that You would help us to be led by Your Spirit so that we might glorify and honor and lift You up because You are indeed awesome and worthy of praise. Father, we love You. We thank You for loving us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. Led by the Spirit means allowing the Spirit to dwell in us. Now, interestingly, a lot like the phrase led by the Spirit, we're not very comfortable with the phrase letting the Spirit dwell in us. Again, we're afraid that it's just a little bit too Pentecostal. It's a little bit too charismatic. However, if we want to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent, we're just going to have to come to grips with the fact that the Bible says the Spirit does indeed dwell in the children of God. In Romans chapter 8, one of our main texts, verse 9, Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And then again in verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16 says, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14. 
2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14, Paul wrote to Timothy, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And also James chapter 4 and verse 5. James chapter 4 and verse 5 says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? There's just absolutely no doubt. The Bible clearly expresses that the child of God, that that the Holy Spirit, I should say, dwells within the child of God. The question is how? How does that happen? See, if we want to speak as the Bible speaks, we're going to have to say that the Spirit dwells in us and we shouldn't be afraid of that. But speaking where the Bible speaks is more than just using that phrase. We've got to use it the same way they used it in Scripture. What do they mean by that? And, and that leads us to a great debate of our age. In fact, uh, for a long time, folks have questioned, is that a literal and personal indwelling? Or is it metaphorical, the same way it was with the temple, where that was the dwelling place of God and yet not literal? The problem is, of course, that I doubt there's anything I could say in this one lesson to bring those two sides of that debate down into one unified position. But I'm not sure that for the point of this lesson that I have to. Because as we're talking about being led by the Spirit, and we think about what it means to have the Spirit dwelling in us, I think what really matters for us is the practical aspect of what this means. On a practical day-to-day basis, what is it that you and I have to do in order for the Spirit to dwell within us, in order to be led by the Spirit. I think there's an interesting couple of passages that parallel that will provide us with the practical teaching that we need. If we look in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit." addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now please take a look at the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 says, Let the Holy Spirit dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to your hearts to God. Is that what your Bible says? That's not what mine said. That's what it said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Let the Holy Spirit be be filled with the Holy Spirit. But here in Colossians 3.16, as he's making the exact same point, he doesn't say Holy Spirit. What does he say? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. How is it that the Spirit dwells in me? What have I got to do practically for the Holy Spirit to abide with me so that I might be led by the Spirit of God. I've got to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within me. John chapter 15 makes the same point. In John chapter 15, Jesus is talking about glorifying God by bearing fruit and by abiding in Him. And notice what it says in verse 4. This is John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This is talking about Jesus dwelling with us. But notice what it says in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. And then also verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in His love. 
What does it mean to abide in Christ? What does it mean for Christ to abide in us? What does it mean for the Spirit to dwell in us just on a pragmatic, practical level? It means I have to be open to the Word of the Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 points out what this Scripture is. It says, knowing this first of all, this is 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How did we get this book? It came from the Holy Spirit. And if I want the Spirit to dwell within me, I have to be open to the Word of the Spirit. I have to be studying the Word of God. I have to be led by the Word of God. Think about what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Why has the Scripture been given to us? So that we might be equipped for every good work, so that we might be taught, that we might be reproved, that we might be corrected, that we might be trained in righteousness. Why has this been given to us? So that we will know... How to live. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God has given us the word by His Holy Spirit so that we might be led by God. Led by the Spirit. So what does this mean practically? No matter which side of the debate we're on, on on how it is that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, even if you are of the mindset to say that no, there is a personal, literal indwelling of somehow the Spirit being inside me, practically, how is that Spirit going to lead us? If you want to say, well, I have inner promptings, I have feelings that allow me to know, how do you know that those things are, are of God? And not just from inside you. Remember what it says in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12? Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 25? There is a way that seems right to a man. Remember how it ends? But its end is the way of death. See, personally, I believe that the Spirit indwells us. And what that means is He influences by the Word. But if you disagree with me on that, even you would have to admit, even if I feel like I have inner promptings, the Spirit is somehow really inside me, guiding me and giving me ideas about which way to go. How am I going to know which ones of those ideas and which ones of those feelings are really from the Spirit of God versus just from my own heart whose end is the way of death? Is it not going to be by opening up the Bible and seeing what it says? That's the only way that I know if my ideas are from me or from God, isn't it? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Being led by the Spirit means allowing the Spirit to dwell in us. It means being open to the word of the Spirit so that we might walk in paths of righteousness. If we take a look, we find out that being led by the Spirit also means crucifying the flesh. There in Galatians. Remember one of our key passages, Galatians chapter 5, verse 18 says, But if we're led by the Spirit, we're no longer under the law. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 24, it's just talking about all that. It says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we go back to Romans chapter 8, and this time in verse 13 it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death 
the deeds of the body, you will live. We're supposed to crucify the flesh. We're supposed to put to death the deeds of the body. Go back over to Galatians chapter 5 again and notice some more of what the text points out. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17 it says, The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. The flesh and the Spirit are at war with one another. And if we want to win the battle, what Paul says in both of those passages is, we've got to put the flesh to death. That is, we've got to put its desires, its passions, its lust, its wants to death. We have to push those away from us. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul again wrote, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then give some examples. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He says we've got to get those things away from us. We've got to put them away from us. In Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 6, Paul said, we know, this is Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. In Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 6, Paul said, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, verse 8, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So, verse 11, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Paul points out that we are supposed to be dead to sin. And having died to sin, we are now to be alive to God. Having died to sin, we no longer present our members as instruments of unrighteousness to submit to sin. We now present our members, that is our bodily members, to God as instruments for righteousness because now we're under grace and we're not under law. And that statement right there is kind of interesting, isn't it? Especially when we consider that our key text in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 18, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 18 said, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. How does that work? Being led by the Spirit means crucifying the flesh, and yet means we are not under the law. We can look back in Romans chapter 7. By the way, I'm sure you're figuring out here, you need to keep your fingers there in the Romans 8 area and the Galatians 5 area because we keep going back and forth. But if you flip back to Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 4, Paul said this, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. 
But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Here Paul points out that we've died to sin, we've died to law. We're alive to the Spirit and to God. Then he points out that that law, that law, and he goes on to point out that the law wasn't sin, it was because of us that there was a problem, but that law aroused sinful passions. And that's why we don't want to be under the law, because the law aroused sinful passions. That's why we want to be under grace. That's why we want to be led by the Spirit. But what does that mean? I could be all wrong, but I'd like to share with you what I think Paul is pointing out here. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, we have one more passage that I think helps us understand. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul says, law is not for the just. Law is for the unholy and profane, the lawless and disobedient. Now, Paul is not saying that if you are just, no law applies to you. Paul is not saying that if we're believing Christians that now we can commit adultery and we can murder and we can steal and it doesn't matter. That's not what Paul is saying at all. No, we cannot look at any of these texts to mean that Christians are allowed to just sin because they're not under law. That's not Paul's point at all. That would, that would so contradict everything that Paul teaches. But what he points out is that the law was not given to be a guide for the righteous and the just. The law was given to condemn the unrighteous and the unjust. The law was given so that covetors would know that they're sinners. The law was given so that adulterers would know that they are sinners. The law was given so that murderers would know that they are sinners. The law was not given to be the guide of righteousness for the just. Rather, the Spirit has been given so that the righteous might be led by the Spirit. And the reason is, is because law, using it as the guide, arouses the passions of the flesh. Let me see if I can illustrate how that works. When I was a kid, I played baseball. I played catcher. And if you're the catcher, you're kind of supposed to be the on-field captain of the team because you're the one that can see everything that's going on out there. And you're supposed to uh, be able to remind folks of what's going on. And one of the jobs that you have is if the pitcher's having trouble, you're supposed to be the one that pumps them up and, and helps them and encourages them. And I remember my dad always telling me, he said, son, if you ever have to walk out to the mound and you ever have to talk to the pitcher, don't tell him where not to pitch it. Tell him where he needs to pitch it. Why? Well, because if I walk out to the pitcher and I say, look, this guy, if you pitch it low and outside, he's going to crank it over the fence. So whatever you do, don't pitch it low and outside. What's going to happen? Zach, aren't you a pitcher? If I tell you, say, don't pitch it low and outside, what are you going to end up doing? 
Low and outside. Because what Zach's going to be thinking is, okay, not low and outside, not low and outside. Not, so what's he thinking about? Low and outside. And so what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to walk out to him and say, all right, pitch it high and inside. Now think about Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and following, where Paul talked about coveting. And he said the law told him what coveting was. He said the law was good, because without the law, he wouldn't have known coveting was a sin. But as he's focused on the law, the law says, don't covet, don't covet, don't covet. What's he thinking about? Coveting. And you add to that the, the forbidden fruit syndrome that says whatever's forbidden, I kind of want to try it out. And now you can see how when we're guided by the law that says don't do this, don't do this, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, and that's what we're thinking about. I can't do this, don't do this, don't do this. What am I thinking about? The very thing I'm not supposed to be doing. And of course it's enticing me because I'm constantly being reminded I'm not supposed to do that. It sure looks fun. And so it arouses the passions of the flesh. Basically, what Paul is saying, instead of spending all our time trying to think about the things that we're not supposed to do, we need to be thinking about the things that the Spirit is leading us to do. Which actually leads us to the next question, next point. Crucifying the flesh. No longer focusing on the desires of the flesh, but now setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit means setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. See, instead of focusing on the flesh, we're supposed to crucify the flesh. We're supposed to put to death the passions and desires of the flesh and now focus our minds and set them on the things of the Spirit. Paul, in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Philippians, chapter 3. Verses 18 and 19 talk about those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. In verse 19 he says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. What's their problem? They're thinking about earthly and material things. That is what their mind is focused on. If we keep reading several verses and get into chapter 4 and verse 8, he provides the contrast saying, this is Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's what our mind is to be set upon. The things of God, the things that are wonderful, the things that are honorable, things that are just. Things that are praiseworthy. And excellent. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul there wrote in Colossians 3 and verse 2, he said, Set your mind on things that are above and not on the things that are on the earth. I don't know about you, but that reminds me of Matthew chapter 6. 
Back in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, Paul said, set your mind on things above, not on things down here on the earth. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's talking about what we value. You know, the things that we value, we think a lot about. That's where our mind is set. That's where our heart is. And Jesus is pointing out that we need to value the things of God. We need to value the spiritual things. We need to set our mind on the heavenly things, not on all the things down here. If our mind is set on material, earthly, ungodly things, then we're not going to be led by the Spirit. But rather, we're going to be focused upon the flesh. And in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now I want you to notice Jesus Responding rebuke to Peter. Notice what he says. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Why? You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What does Jesus rebuke there? He says, Peter, you're not thinking from the Spirit's perspective. You're not thinking from God's perspective. You're thinking from the perspective of a finite human. And for man, with all of their plans and ideas about what the Messiah was supposed to do, Jesus was supposed to come in and whip the Romans. He wasn't supposed to die on a cross. You see, what it means to set our mind on the things of the Spirit, it means to view life and the situations in our life from God's perspective, not from our own. To step back and take a look at how things will fit in God's plan. To take, take a step back and look at how things will work with a God who causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him. We must not look at things from a finite man's perspective. We not, must not make our choices based on what finite men would think, but rather take a look at the Spirit's perspective, setting our mind on the things of the Spirit. And finally, being led by the Spirit means bearing the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19, Paul talked about the works of the flesh. He said, The works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, fits of anger rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But when we're led by the Spirit, we put those passions and those works to death. And now we have focused our mind on the things of the Spirit. And so what will happen? Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
Peter provides a similar list in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For these things are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the things that are supposed to be in our lives as we glorify and honor God. In fact, remember in John chapter 15 and verse 8, it says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. It's by bearing this fruit that we prove we're Jesus' disciples, that we're led by the Spirit. But I want you to notice something. Paul in these texts and Peter is not telling us that if you want to be led by the Spirit, you need to white-knuckle your way through these qualities. You need to just really work on love and peace and joy and patience. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that is the fruit of the Spirit. That is the result of being led by the Spirit. This is really the test. We can look at our lives because what Paul is really saying is, is if you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, you're being led by the Spirit. And if you don't have those things, you may be going to church every week, but you're not being led by the Spirit. You see, if we sit back and we realize, I'm, I'm struggling with that love thing. I don't have a lot of love. I don't have a lot of patience. I don't have a lot of peace. And yes, by the way, I know this is a growth process. I'm not trying to say it's an in or out thing. You're going to grow in all of these things, and hopefully you can always see where you have room for improvement. So please understand that. But the point being is that if you're sitting back and you're struggling with love, you're struggling with peace, you're struggling with patience, Galatians 6 and verse 8 says, we reap what we sow. If we sow to the flesh, we'll reap from the flesh corruption. But if we sow to the Spirit, we'll reap eternal life. The point is, this fruit is the indicator of whether or not we are being led by the Spirit. And if we look and say, I'm having trouble with one of those. I'm not very loving. I don't have peace. I'm not patient. I don't have self-control. Then the issue is not necessarily to sit there and try to say, all right, I really got to work on that. The issue is to back up and say, all right, what seeds am I sowing? Am I sowing seed to the flesh? What seeds do I need to quit sowing? What seeds do I need to start sowing? Am I setting my mind on the things of the Spirit? Because if I'm allowing the Spirit to dwell in me, being open to His Word, if I'm crucifying the passions of the flesh and I'm setting my mind on the things of the Spirit, guess what's going to happen? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's just natural. So the question is, what kind of fruit are we bearing? If we're being led by the Spirit, this is the fruit we'll have. And if we don't have this fruit, we're not being led by the Spirit. How you doing? 